I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 19 this morning. And as you're doing that, um, we've, we've been in this journey, uh, we're calling it the nine beats, and how uh, we're asked and invited by the Spirit to step into particular rhythms and practices um, to be a certain kind of people in the world. And that when we say yes to Christ, we're given the gift of the Spirit, and with the Spirit comes these nine beats. So we're on beat number five, which is kindness. And we've been doing a prayer practice at the beginning, so um, I'm gonna invite you to say this prayer practice with me as a way of posturing and preparing ourselves as we listen to the scriptures. So let's pray this together. Please join me. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Amen. Amen. Listen to the reading of the scripture this morning, 1 John 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. So as I said earlier, we come to beat number five, kindness. And in Galatians chapter five, the apostle Paul, as he's writing this letter, goes through and begins to list what the fruit of the spirit are, this, this whole package that is already living and breathing in us. It's just a matter of then how do we cultivate these characteristics in our lives. So when we think about kindness, kindness is actually translated as loving deeds. So it's not just being nice, it's loving deeds, deeds and actions. So when we look at kindness, we think of kindness is doing, for, doing something for someone else out of a spirit of love and genuineness. So it comes back to our motivation. It gets to the undercurrent of why we're doing what we're doing or, or what's the motivation for expressing acts of loving kindness to another human being in need. And then what he does here in this letter is he takes it even further and he, and he states a really strong statement that, that should wake you up a bit. And the strong statement, he says, this then is how we know we actually belong to the truth, is that we are people who actually put our words into action, loving deeds. If we want to know, like we want to measure our own selves and say, am I, am I really participating in what God's doing in the world? Am I, am I truly saying yes to all that Jesus is doing in the world? Then my actions need to match my words. So it's quite, quite eye-opening. So with this as our framework this morning, I think we could say simply that kindness, the frame that we want to look through, is practical generosity. It's just practicality. What kind of practical generosity practices can we step into as God's living, breathing presence here on earth? Now, if you think about it that way, um, kindness does not mean just being nice. 
Kindness isn't about sentimentality. It's not about just having this loving feeling for another person. It's much deeper than that. It's words put into actions. It means that kindness, if it's living and breathing in my life, that means that I take my time, my money, my resources, my talents, and my deeds, and I put them where my heart is rooted. It has a way of revealing where our heart is rooted as human beings. You think about it like this, paying attention to your motives. So uh, our greatest possessions in life, one of our, probably our most greatest possession in life is our homes. So if you've been blessed with a home, when, when a repair is needed or something happens to your home and you get the estimate and it's $1,500 and you think, okay, well that, that's significant, but when it's your home, you just you almost don't give it a second thought. You just go, 1,500 bucks, that's a deal. And you just put money into that like it's nothing. Now, if it's your washing machine, you probably would be a fool to put $1,500 into a washing machine. Just go get another one. But if the repair person came and they said, here's your estimate, and you think, is it really worth it? You give it a second thought. You think, I don't, I don't know if it's really that valuable to me to put that money into my washing machine. Now, think about human beings. Human beings, according to the scripture, are, I mean, they are infinitely precious and valuable. They're, they're the only part of God's creation, I think, that's gonna live forever. So a human being, I mean, to think about putting your time and your money and your resources into another human being, it's like that should be effortless for us. To think about putting loving action into practice for another person created in the very likeness and image of God. Now it's getting back to the attitude of the human heart. Attitudes that see human beings the way that God sees human beings. Because look at verse 17. This is important. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? That's like, okay, I'm looking at myself and I say I love God. I say that the love of God is in me but I have no pity or I have no act of compassion or I'm not moved into action when I see a brother or sister in need. That calls me to question of like, what's really going on inside of me? What's living and breathing in my heart? God's heart is a generous heart. So if we think about kindness as practical generosity or we think about kindness as loving expressions and deeds that are motivated and rooted in God's love, that can lead us to assume that the opposite of kindness is a closed heart or a stingy heart. So when we think about the opposite, it's like, am I practicing stinginess or am I practicing generosity towards those in need? What's, what's the motivation? So again, it's getting under the root cause of why we do what we do. Now, I wanna stand back for a moment and look at a bigger picture because I oftentimes like, like to think about what is Jesus up to in the world and then how can I participate in what Jesus is up to in the world? And when I think about God, what is God's desire, God's dream for the world? What is it that God is going after and then how can we, as his followers, step in and participate that? So all the way back to the beginning of the scripture in the book of Genesis, the story begins in goodness. It begins with God's good creation. He calls humanity good. He calls his creation good. And then as soon as humanity decided to step away from that goodness and disconnect themselves, um, the scriptures talk about things broke. So in Genesis chapter three, pretty early in the story, things began to get lopsided and turned sideways. So there's four areas that I think um, significantly broke and shattered in Genesis chapter three. First of all, as soon as humanity decided to step away from God and say, you know what, I think we got this, we're gonna go out on our own, we experience what is called spiritual alienation. 
So there's a disconnection from God. There's a disconnect from relationship with God. So we have the spiritual alienation problem in our society. Secondly, I think we have a psychological problem that occurred. We have broken relationships now, broken communication. Um, we do this thing called blame shifting. Are you aware of this? Blame shifting where we blame the person for our problems when really maybe we have some, some say in it too. Like maybe we're participating in the problem, but we wanna shift it to somebody else. And we have this thing called shame, this ugly thing called shame and, and guilt that kind of seeps into our lives. So we have a psychological breakdown that happened in Genesis 3. But then I also think we have what are called social problems. So we've got um, issues of injustice, systems that try to control and oppress people groups. And so we've got the social breakdown. And then I think the last area that broke in Genesis 3 was what I would call physical problems. So now we have sickness. We have death, we have decay, we have things that are um, atrophy, they're, they're breaking down, they're, they're moving towards death and more chaos and disconnection. Now, if we think about the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus are all um, pointed, I think, at those four areas. He taught about the kingdom of God, but then he taught and acted and demonstrated after he taught. So he didn't just talk about things, he taught and then he put things into action. Right? Sometimes he fed before he talked because he wanted his audience, hey, you're hungry and I can see that, so I'm gonna take care of your physical need first before we talk about your spiritual needs. So he feeds, he heals, he touches, he moves into the crevices of cracks of society so that he can eradicate all that happened in Genesis 3. So God's dream, God's desire is taking Jesus and saying, I wanna do something about all that broke in Genesis 3 and deal with the spiritual alienation problem so that people can be put back into right relationship with God, to deal with our psychological problems so that we can learn how to better communicate with one another and not blame shift or get wrapped up in shame and guilt, that we can deal with social issues, so issues of injustice, so as Jesus followers, we're not afraid of social injustice, we move towards it and we act in it, and then to deal with physical problems, sickness and, and decay, believing that God is a healer, and so we profess God can heal and restore. And so Jesus is the one that models that for us to eradicate all that happened in Genesis chapter three. We could say that Jesus embodied kindness, that he embodied the very genuine nature of what it means to be kind. We see in Jesus loving action put into practice. He did what he said. So we see that in Christ. So Jesus is with his disciples and he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to the Father, but I'm gonna leave you the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is now going to guide the church and my church is going to be the living, breathing presence of God here on earth. So that's, that's what we get to do. We get to be the living, breathing presence of Christ here on earth through word and through action. And then the Holy Spirit comes and fills us and not only gives us the fruit of the Spirit, but gives us what are called the gifts of the Holy Spirit the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, the authors, they, they begin to write out, these are the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the body of Christ so that we now can participate in eradicating all that happened in Genesis chapter three. Now this list of gifts, I think can be broken down into two different categories. You have both word and deed gifts. It's not that the word gifts are higher, or there's not a hierarchy in these gifts. They're all equal and needed so that the body of Christ can flourish in the world and bring it back into right relationship with God and healing. So we have word and deed gifts. Word gifts are like preaching, the talking person up front. That's what I'm doing right now. 
preaching, teaching, uh, counseling, uh, therapy, um, people going after spiritual issues and psychological issues, those word gifts, or evangelism. Uh, the other gifts that are more deed-oriented gifts are gifts of help, uh, service, gifts of mercy, and they're so needed in our world, all to undo what happened in Genesis 3. So when I look at humanity and I see what I would call inner circle needs and outer circle needs. So I want you to stay with me, okay? Word and deed, inner circle needs, outer circle needs. I'm gonna bring this together in a moment, so just try your best to stay with me. Inner circle needs. Inner circle needs are what I think are categorized as the spiritual alienation and psychological alienation and breakdown that happens. Um, inner circle needs are really hard to see. They're hard to identify because we're not quite sure what's going on inside of people. It's, I don't, I don't have an ability to know what's going on in your life. Sometimes people will say, Pastor, you seem like you know everything that's going on in my life. Can I just reveal to you, I don't. <laughs> I don't have a clue as to what's going on in your head. I barely know what's going on inside of me, let alone inside of you. So those inner circle needs are really tough to identify. They're, they're hard to see, but they're met through words. They're met through words because they're hidden, so we're trying to bring them out. Now, outer circle needs are easier to identify. These are felt needs. So if a person is disconnected from God, the scriptures tell us that the only way a person can come to an awareness that they're disconnected from God is if the Holy Spirit reveals that to them. So a person may be like, I don't know that I'm disconnected from God. It seems like life is fine. Until the Spirit reveals that your life is disconnected from God, it's very difficult to explain to them your life is disconnected from God. They don't see it. Those inner circle needs are very hard to see. But if a person's hungry, you don't have to tell them they're hungry. Hey, you're hungry. I know I'm hungry. They get it. So those outer circle needs are much easier to identify. And let me give you an example of how I think this can be put into play. In the 1800s, uh, there was a man named William Wilberforce who sought out to end slavery and abolish slavery in Britain in the 1800s. So he pulled together a group of people to go after the problem. And he decided the only way to get rid of the problem, to eradicate it, is to actually pay all the slave owners what the slave was worth so that we can keep everything together. To actually buy the slaves. And in 1833, the British government actually paid the slave owners and purchased these slaves' freedom. Now, this was an act of kindness by the British government put into practice. That gives us some understanding of how to grab. Now, Wilberforce had a friend named William Pitt. William Pitt came from a, family, a, fam a famous family. In fact, uh, Pittsburgh is named after this family. So Wilberforce uh, is connected to God. William Pitt, disconnected from God. Wilberforce is trying to get his friend to come to church with him to hear a sermon. Because he thinks if he just hears a good sermon, then he'll say yes to Jesus. That's, that's how it works, right? All the pressure's on the, on the person up front, the talking head. That person, if we just hear that person, then maybe this person will yield their lives to Jesus. So finally, Wilberforce says, okay, okay, I'll go to church with you. I'll go, I'll appease you just to get you off my back. So he comes in and it happened to be one of those Sundays where it was just like the sermon was spot on. You know those Sundays where you're just like, oh, that was a good one. Way to go. High-fiving the minister saying that well done. So he gives this amazing sermon displaying the love of God, the power of God, the, the good news of Jesus and how he wants to be in relationship with people. 
And so Wilberforce is absolutely like, he's convinced my friend's gonna say yes to Jesus. It's like, this is a done deal. This is how it works. This is what Wilberforce said as he was leaving the service with his friend Pitt. I didn't understand a word that guy was talking about. <laughs> Unless the Spirit of God opens up a person's heart, mind, eyes to see that they need God, it's just not gonna work according to the scriptures. So the, the sermon can be waxed, it can be poetic, it can be beautiful, it can be excellent. And not that we don't want it to be. And we're convinced sometimes that that's, that's how a person will come to Christ. But there's something desperately that we need to keep in mind. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are both for inner circle needs and outer circle needs. They are both word and deed gifts. And if we place emphasis over word gifts and not deed gifts, it gets out of balance. We need both, word and deed. Jesus Christ was a person who was mighty in word and deed is what Luke 24 says. He was both, and we see it in his actions. He healed, he met needs, he fed, he touched unclean people, but then he also taught. He did all of that. He encompassed the entire ministry. This is the invitation for us as Jesus followers. This is what we get to do, all of it. We get to embody all of this ministry. So kindness is absolutely required. And the Bible says over and over and over again the way in which we can know that we are Christians. An identifying way in which we can know that we actually belong to the truth is that you are concerned, compassionate, and generous to people with economic needs. That's the truth, that's the scripture. The Bible says that kindness grows right along with love and joy and peace and patience. It's all mixed in there together. And the body of Christ has got to have both. Because in the East Bay, my friend, where God has planted us, they can't easily identify us meeting people's spiritual needs, but the world can see us meeting the needs of social problems. They can see us feeding people. They can see us stepping into darkness and speaking out against issues of injustice when our brothers and sisters are being oppressed, they can see us moving into action. And a person like Pitt might come into a church service and see, looks like people are dealing with depression and their anxiety and it seems like this God seems to be healing them and it, and it seems really amazing and that, that seems like a neat club. But when people are moving into action and actually giving of themselves and saying, we're, we're here to eradicate all of the effects of sin, all of it, it's almost undeniable. You say, there's something about those Christians that's actually kind of weird, but there's something that they're doing in the world that I might want to participate in, in dealing with people's needs. Let me give you another example. In the second, in the second century, um, Julian was the emperor of Rome and Julian hated Christians. He did everything he could to stamp out Christians because Christians were causing, they were like these pesky little suckers that were causing all these problems in Rome. And they were defiant, they were subversive, they weren't gonna go the way of Caesar, they weren't gonna bow, they weren't gonna say that Caesar is king, they kept insisting that Jesus is king, and that just doesn't work for an oppressive system. So he did everything he could to stamp them out. But the more he tried to stamp them out and get rid of them, it's like the movement grew and expanded. He's like, the more I oppress them and the more I come after them, the thing seems to grow and get bigger and cause more problems. And he says this, this is interesting. He says, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of these Christians 
as their charity to strangers. The Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. So the Romans were like when people would get sick or there was disease or decay, they'd be like, just get them out of here. They're going to affect the rest of us. Just get rid of them. They're a problem. The Greeks were doing the same thing. And these Christians, these Jesus followers, kept serving their enemies. Almost like Jesus when he says, hey, if you want to follow me, you have to love your enemies. Really? We have to put that into practice? Yes, you get to put that into practice. Not only were they taking care of their own poor, they were taking care of the poor of the Romans and the Greeks, the very people that were oppressing them. That feels like a Jesus posture to me. And that's kindness. And that's the kind of kindness that we need in the world today. Not to put measure on it, say, I'm not going to address those needs. Like, no, 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 no. We as Jesus followers, we move into those areas of oppression and darkness and decay and addiction and all the things that are breaking down. And we're like, we're here to serve you. We're here to love. We, we want to be a people who are marked not only by love, joy, and peace, patience, but we want to be marked by kindness. We want to be the kind of people who are kind. The one thing that they couldn't deny about the early Christians is that they were kind. Those people are kind, not nice, but kind. People who put their words and their actions into practice. They're interconnected. They were definitely connected. Now, the Bible clearly calls us to love God. No question. Hillside, we are good at loving God. But Hillside, Jesus also says, love your neighbor. People around you that are different than you, that don't think like you, that hear things differently than you. We get to love everyone. Isn't that a beautiful invitation? I oftentimes tell people, as a pastor, you know what I get to do? I get to love everyone. Like, who doesn't want to do that? I get to love everyone, everyone. People who are different than you, people who have different orientation than you, people from different backgrounds, different social situations, different race, different culture. I get to love everyone as a Jesus follower. That sounds like a great deal. I'm in. And to put that into action, to be in relationship with people who think differently than me, who talk differently than me, who believe differently than me, so that I can be in relationship with people and bring the good news of Jesus Christ. We have this starting point of generosity in the scripture that's rooted in this thing called the tithe, right? We don't like talking about money because it's like, well, just, let's just not talk about money. But the Bible is clearly states that we're, we're invited to give 10% of whatever we bring in back to the kingdom of God, back into the work and the cause of Christ in the world. Now, when we think about generosity and we think about kindness, Kind people don't wait for the problems of others to bring brought onto us. We move towards them before they become destitute. We don't wait for people to get into a destituted position. We move into those areas of destitution before they become problematic. And people who are kind don't sit back and wait. They move into action. Now, I want to take this a little bit further. I would say this. You're not really being kind until you can point to parts of your lifestyle that have been changed. Choices that you have lost because you have chosen to help other people. Now, poverty, I think it's, it's complex, so it's hard to like say this is what poverty is, but I think part of poverty is that people are in poverty or in those cycles of poverty have less and less choices. Those of us who are in positions of privilege have more choices in life. 
But I want you to think about this in regards to kindness. If you're helping people to the tune where your number of choices have not been diminished at all, I don't think you're helping people enough. We're, we're called to move in as kind people. And for some, 10% is a lot. For others, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe there's more that God is asking us to move into. But imagine giving, giving to the point where your choices have been diminished because of your generosity. Imagine the cost of that. Now, does this mean that every time we walk by somebody in need and people are like, I need this and I need this, that we should move into action? No, I think we should act, but I don't think we should react. I think we get very reactive sometimes. And reactive is when people come and the need presses in, it's like, well, I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to do that. And I don't want my other Christian brothers and sisters to know I'm a schlup, so I don't wanna do that. So I wanna step into this and actually take care of these needs. I think we should act, but not react to every need that's around us. So when needs arise or we see something that needs to be addressed, the question that we might wanna ask ourselves is, what am I going to do? What am I going, and where am I going to put my kindness ministry into effect? What's Jesus inviting me into? I'm not going to react, but I am going to act. And I'm gonna prayerfully consider who I want to partner with and who I want to give to and where I want to spend my time and my energy and my money to the point where now my choices have been diminished because I'm super generous. I think that's the kindness posture that the spirit is asking the body of Christ to move into. I would like us to consider looking at people groups, study, this church, other ministries to say, is that, is that where I wanna put my time and my resource and my money into? Because I believe that human beings are infinitely valuable and matter and that no amount of time or money really is too much. To the point where now I can look at my own life and go, I can't do that any longer. I don't get to do this because I've given so generously, but man, there's so much joy in giving. Question for you that I want you to think about. Is kindness flowing in my life this morning? Are my choices diminished because I have chosen to be generous to the needs of others? Ask yourself, how am I, how are we choosing to give our time, our energy, and our money into the renewal work of eradicating all that broke in Genesis chapter Three, there's the invitation.